The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by three former cabinet members in the trade realm. All three have served with great distinction. So I'll start with Ambassador Hills, who was U.S. trade rep from 1989 to 1993, then go to Secretary Franklin, who was Secretary of Commerce at the end of the H.W. Bush administration, and then to Ambassador Schwab, who was U.S. Trade Representative from 2006 to 2009 at the end of the George W. Bush administration. So, Ambassador Hills, you were U.S. Trade Representative during the H.W. Bush administration. At that point, China had not acceded to the WTO. What were the major issues you confronted at that time, and what lessons did you learn from those issues that we can apply today? Very good question, Steve. I think that uh, in 1989, we were watching China just begin to move more rapidly on market openings. And I can recall sitting with Madame Wui, a vice premier, and her second-in-command, now governor of the People's Bank of China, Governor Zhou. And in January, we concluded an intellectual property protection agreement, and that was a first. And in November, same team, we concluded a five-year rollover tariff reduction agreement, Now, these were good times to be talking about modernization of China because Zhu Ranji was uh, very active and very effective. But we had just lost the election when we finished the the, uh, tariff agreement. And I said to Madame Wu Yi, you know, I'm not going to be here. And we are committing to have reciprocal reaction to bringing down our tariffs, and how will I know that you're going to do it? And she grabbed my hand and said, Carla, you can trust me. And when they, the Chinese, went to uh, come to the WTO almost a decade later, I, I checked to see how they had managed on that tariff agreement of uh, 1992. And They adhered to it all the way. So your question is, what did you learn from that? And I think face-to-face meetings, getting to know your counterpart, and trying to build trust is absolutely essential. And in trade, it is a negotiation. You don't get 100%, and they don't get 100%. But if you can find a win-win, that's what you have to do. And Madame Mui was helpful along with Zhu in accomplishing that. Barbara, same question. What were the issues you were... You were obviously over at Commerce, not at USTR. What were the yes, issues you Yes, although there's confronted? some commonality here. Um, well, let's go back to 1989 for a minute. Uh, of course, that's when the administration began in January. But then when we got to June yeah. of 1989, we remember the events at Tiananmen Square. And there was, I think, shock and sadness and displeasure in the U.S. 
And the result of that was eight sanctions that were placed on China. And one of them banned high-level government-to-government contact. And I really should say that I think things were quite sour then. There were the atmospherics. There were people here who just didn't want us to deal with China. They were communists. And there were others who just were very sympathetic to Taiwan. It was a very uh, kind of a difficult time. Well, then let's fast forward to 92. Um, in the election campaign, the candidate Clinton had called or told President Bush he was coddling the Beijing dictators. President Bush then, of course, lost the election. After that, the president decided he wanted that ban on high-level government-to-government contact removed so that the new administration could have much clearer sailing in terms of continuing the engagement. And so he asked me to go to Beijing and do that. And the, the vehicle was to reconvene the U.S.-China Joint Commission on Commerce and Trade, JCCT. Now, there was something else going on at the time that I think gives a little more color to, to this. In September of 92, it was announced that there was an agreement between a company in Texas. Remember, we got an election campaign going on here. A company in Texas, General Dynamics, to sell 150 F-16s to Taiwan. Beijing, not happy about that mm-hmm. at all. And Bill Clark, who was then Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia Pacific, uh, wrote a memo, very confidential memo, that said we needed to do far, four things to show the Chinese that we still had uh, a goodwill intentions. The top of that list was to for the Commerce Secretary to go and, and reconvene JCCT. Two of the other things had to do with military matters and one other science and technology tightly held memo, for, obviously for political reasons, went from state to, to the White House. The week after the election, Larry Eagleburger, acting secretary of state, called me in his big, deep voice and said, you know we want you to go to China. Well, I knew no such thing. I had not seen that memo. It was so tightly held. So I expressed surprise. He got off the phone very quickly, and then the president most gracious human being in the universe <laughs> called and said, I want you to go. This is, this is very important. So literally we threw the, the mission together. By then it's almost Thanksgiving. We, we literally threw it together because we needed, we needed to go in, in December. Before we left, uh, two scientific ministers came and I had a list of, of projects the U.S. business community was interested in in China. And I began to ask for things, and um, not knowing what was going to happen. Well, off we went, middle of December. Li Lanqing was the minister on the other side, and he and I got along quite famously. We re- reconvened the JCCT, presided or, or watched a bunch of other projects being signed, and uh, including a large Boeing order that for triple sevens to China Southern Airlines, which had been put on hold when the F-16 sale began. Uh, we, we presided over those and went to then from there to Hong Kong, made a speech about sanctity of contracts, which was a messaging back to our friends in Beijing, and then we came home. Now, the bottom line here, it removed that ban 
on high-level government-to-government contact. We brought back a billion dollars' worth of signed contracts for American companies, and more business flowed from that GE-sold engines for those triple sevens. But I think the most important thing in, in hindsight, or maybe not even hindsight, was that it gave a green, the whole activity gave a green light to American companies who wanted to go to China and explore business opportunities but were hesitating because they were not sure where the U.S. government was going to be in all of this. So as we look forward, if you look at 93 and what happened to trade and investment, it skyrocketed after that. So again, in hindsight, I think this was a kind of inflection point uh, in, in terms of the building of, of the, uh, the economic relationship. I might say at JCCT, we pushed for these two agreements that, that USTR had negotiated to be implemented. And I guess that's about the, the, uh, the story. Well, uh, one last line. You see where the economic relationship is today. And it, to me, is the very bedrock foundation of the relationship between the two countries. So we came home went out of office, and I'm not sure the atmospherics changed a whole lot. And then we, it, it took a, a couple more years for the Clinton administration to capitalize on what had happened, which they then did. So they, you, you, of course, it was during the, the – uh, you were oh, just following on the southern – you know, Deng Xiaoping's Deng southern Xiaoping tour, southern, which yeah. was perfect timing in that regard. But oh, Sue. I forgot the lessons. Okay. Um, I thought the lesson was... I'm, I'm going to echo what, what Doug said lesson I thought was here. U.S. government should send the right signal to the business community. No? Well, that's a piece of it. But I think engagement, engagement is really crucial, no matter what kind of prickliness and tension is going on. And I have to say the other thing that, that I was pleased about, we were not sure how we were going to be received by the Chinese side, to be perfectly honest, because things were really rather tense. And we had very pleasant... Uh, professional, candid conversations with uh, Li Lanqing, actually with Li Peng, the premier at the time as well. And I came back very, very pleased, frankly, that that was the, the tone of, of what had happened. So I won't ask you if you think Ash Carter should have canceled his trip to Beijing. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> <laughs> Sue. Well, I, I would actually offer just a, a bridge between between uh, Barbara, Carla, and myself. You mentioned three women on the stage. The, the missing woman, obviously, is Charlene Barshevsky. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was, and Mickey Cantor, obviously, but, but he's not a gal. Uh, but Charlene, um, Charlene was USTR was the USTR who was largely responsible for negotiating China's WTO accession. And she was the USTR during the Clinton administration. Uh, and, and so a lot of the history runs through her as well if we're, we're on, this, on this track. By the time I became USTR, uh, we were in a in a very different world in terms of U.S.-China trade. Uh, that was 2005, and 2001, China joined the WTO. China was to have completed the terms of its WTO accession by 2005, which is to say that by 2005, the things that China had not done. Uh, in, of its commitments, we knew about. And the things that 
China was doing that were inconsistent with its commitments under the WTO had become evident. So by 2005, um, we were beginning to file cases against China and the WTO. Those were the negative things. We were waiting for, and I would note still waiting for, China to present its um, uh, a viable offer to um, join the, uh, the government procurement agreement under the WTO, which was part of its WTO um, commitment that the, it has never um, completed. Uh, and at the same time, on the negotiating side... To this uh, date... To this China, date, to this China, date has China has not, not signed the government procurement agreement. To this date, China has still not lived up to right. its promises uh, in in the WTO uh, accession uh, agreement uh, to to come up with a an acceptable uh, w, uh, government procurement uh, agreement. Um, entity coverage is the technical term, and. Uh, in addition, on the, on the negotiating side, I had the, the very interesting opportunity and, and in many cases great pleasure um, uh, of learning what it was like to negotiate side by side, both side by side and on opposite sides of the table, um, and at the same table in a round table environment in the multilateral trade negotiation that was going on at the time at the WTO, then the Doha round with China. China was at its first multilateral trade negotiation under the auspices of the WTO. Now, that negotiation has since fallen apart, um, uh, and there are a lot of, there's a lot of blame to go around, and, and, and China is not uh, the country that, that gets the blame uh, for that. There's enough blame to go around. Um, the U.S., China, and I would argue India in particular, uh, gets the blame for that, but there is no single country that gets the blame for that. Uh, uh, in addition, we all had the opportunity, the Joint Commission on Commerce and Trade, um, as well as under the uh, under the Bush administration, we launched uh, the Strategic Economic Dialogue, uh, which is now known as the Strategic and Economic Dialogue um, under the under the Obama administration, uh, so there were a whole variety of things going on. Uh, call it the push me pull you of, of economic trade and investment relationships, uh, cutting across uh, all of the agencies uh, in the uh, U.S. government, all the economic and trade uh, agencies. A lot of work with the private sector, and then on the Chinese side. And here I'm morphing into a response to your lessons learned question. Uh, on the Chinese side, a whole variety of players, and, and obviously Hu Jintao was in the leadership position at that point, um, and yet what we saw evolving is what we see um, even more now today, but a, uh, as soon as the WTO negotiation, accession negotiation was over, a, a sort of a proliferation of power centers, um, and much harder to reach conclusions and to get to yes on the Chinese side uh, and to get an answer in negotiations. Who was in charge during China's WTO negotiation? It was clear who was in charge and who was making decisions. Um, depending on the WTO dispute, 
Um, some disputes could be resolved quite easily, quite readily. Some took forever. Um, in the case of WTO negotiations, uh, the negotiations themselves, uh, some you could, had the sense you could get resolved, some you didn't. In the case of our counterparts, a USDR counterpart, depending on the negotiations, sometimes it's the MOFCOM minister, sometimes it's a vice premier, sometimes it's both. Sometimes it's the gentleman behind the curtains. And by the way, increasingly it's gentlemen. Once Wu Yi and Madame Ma stepped away from the table, the women seem to disappear, and it's largely all guys at this point. Uh, during my three-and-a-half-year tenure, uh, Wu Yi and Ma. Bo Xi Lai were my counterparts, and then Chen Deming and Wang Shishang were my counterparts. But even then... If it was an agricultural issue or it was a finance issue, it was somebody else. And heaven forbid if it became an information issue because then there were a whole bunch of other people who got involved with that. So lessons, depending on the issue, um, from a U.S. perspective, sometimes it looks as though there's this behemoth making a decision and there's a, a um, you know homogeneous big decision um, machine there that knows exactly what it's doing, and sometimes you think there's a not very competent, not very empowered group of people trying to figure out what the outcome's going to be. <laughs> Let me jump ahead to WTO. Let me ask a 10th anniversary of, of China's accession to WTO. Both the WTO and USTR put out very detailed reports on, on China's compliance. Um, so let me ask the three of you, let me do in reverse order. Has China basically complied? Where do you, in other words, it's obviously an overgeneralization you're right. going to have to respond with, right. but how would you characterize their compliance? Uh, it was very hard for China to come into the WTO. It's hard for any country to come into the WTO, by the way. Just sort of the short version. Uh, countries coming into the WTO today are expected in a five- to ten-year period to do what everybody else had 40 years to do. Uh, that's the short version. Uh, and, oh, by the way, every you have 30 different countries telling you one at a time exactly what you have to do, and it's a one-way negotiation, so it's really awful. You know, ask the Vietnamese ask the Russians, ask any country that's come in in the last 10 years what an awful exercise it is, and, and China found it very difficult. However, countries that have come in in the last 10 years, for the most part, have come in because they wanted to use WTO accession to self-impose reforms that their leadership wanted to do anyway. So China came in for that reason. China's leaders made the decision that that's what China wanted to do, and China did that. And so those basic reforms uh, were put in place for the most part. I would argue, though, that China has, you know, starting in 2005, you started to see, as soon as the, the implementation was completed, you started to see the beginning of a deterioration. Uh, and China's... Compliance with the WTO is more the letter of the law than the spirit of the WTO. And I think China has been hurt by that 
because other countries have treated China the same way. And China, as the biggest exporter in the world, has been hurt. And there's, if, if you look at a website like globaltradealerts.org, you see that China's exports have been hurt more than any other country's exports by trade barriers put up by other countries. And I think those other countries have learned nasty lessons. Um, and China is in part to blame by that for that. Uh, but we all are. It's not just China. Exactly. Carla, how would you characterize well, I agree with uh, Sue's analysis. I look back to uh, the beginning, uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping at, in 1978, and there was gradual uh, but uh, really considerable liberalization, moving to the market. I mean, in 1975, China had no market. It was uh, really solidly government. And uh, it leveled off. I don't think it deteriorated so much as we had seen it like climbing up a hill, and then it became a plateau under Hu Jintao. And uh, so we all had high expectations with the current president. Uh, we did ask China, and it did for the reason that Sue said, uh, use the advantages of getting an open market for uh, growing their economy and creating opportunities for their people by getting into the WTO. At uh, the time we had uh, of the Uruguay round, when uh, that was the first, uh, uh, well, last round before they were in, really, um, uh, we had 126 members. Now we're up to 182 members, and uh, uh, it's, uh, we've asked China to do a lot, not only uh, to do in a 10-year period what uh, has taken all of us from the post-war in the GATT up to today, but also to, and to do it rapidly, but also in competition with industrialized countries, these other members of the G20. And uh, so I like to give them applause for how far they've come, but hold out a carrot for how much more they could obtain were they to move forward. It could really be a win-win situation. And when uh, Xi Jinping talks about market reform, that's using the WTO and the rules, the international rules, uh, to move forward really would help him. And uh, But we have a little bit of a collision between the politics and the economics, and they'll have to work that out. Barbara? Well, I'm, I'm in agreement with, uh, with what you have both <laughs> said. Um, would add that I think the U.S. business community at, at this point um, – uh, believes that there's more to be done in the spirit, <laughs> I think you got at that, uh, of WTO accession than, than we are seeing right now. And then you were mentioning, Carla, the, the, the reform, the third plenum reform proposals, which uh, seem to have uh, been slow in, in implementation, probably because there's not consensus on, on the other side about about how quickly all of that should be done. So, bottom line, there is more that China could do um, to to really uh, bring forth uh, not only the letter. You mentioned the government procurement agreement that is right. not 
agree to either. Not only the letter of what they signed, but also the spirit of it. The very interesting point here, which is, and often we lose sight of it, that Zhu Rongji used WTO accession to force through reforms in China. And it was remarkably successful, especially as Sue pointed out in the first five years. Let's assume you are USTR, you are Secretary of Commerce, and you're sitting at an NSC meeting, and you're discussing the TPP. And you know this lesson. You remember 2001. Isn't there an argument to be made that we should have included China in TPP discussions at the very beginning? Because even though it was a bridge too far, as Carl is very fond of pointing out, you can give people 5, 10, 15 years to, to ultimately comply. But shouldn't we have given Xi Jinping the opportunity to use TPP the way Zhu Rongji used WTO? If you were sitting at the NSC meeting... Well, what would you, as Secretary of Commerce, what would you have said? It's good for American business? What, what would your response yeah, have been? I probably uh, would have argued for that. You would have Although argued for I, it. I think it prob- was probably too great a leap at the time, and it is what it is now. I would hope, though, that this thing gets, I would hope this thing gets approved <laughs> here, uh, lame duck or not, lame duck session, but get it, get it approved. It, we, we, we need this agreement. And I would hope that China would then reach reach to belong to TPP once we've we've got it. I think we've got to deal with what we've got. Right. <laughs> and w- it might have been nice to to have done it otherwise, but but we didn't. <laughs> I agree. I think that uh, uh, I hope very much that we can get the Trans Pacific Partnership through. Uh, it's uh, been evaluated. We as a nation will gain from it. But the gains are much greater than the monetary evaluations because it really is a first step, in my view, of being able to accomplish an Asia-Pacific free trade agreement, which we would have China be part of. They are negotiating their regional comprehensive economic partnership with all of Asia. But uh, keep in mind that in 1994... We issued the Bogar goals for uh, out at the uh, in Indonesia, saying we're going to have a free trade agreement for the uh, Asia Pacific region, and uh, we're going to have all the nations in it. Well, we've fallen uh, behind on that, but it's time that we did it. And my own view is, if we get TPP through, that will enlarge the possibilities that we accomplish a free trade agreement for Asia, but we'll do more because I do believe firmly in competitive liberalization. And I recall that when the Uruguay round crashed in Europe in 90 and we began negotiating the NAFTA in 91, June of 91, we shook hands with an agreement in August of 92, 14 months later. Bush Sr. signed it in December of uh, 92, and President Clinton got it through the Congress. It took effect in 1994. Within four months, all members of the Uruguay Round came back to the table, completed the negotiations, created the World Trade Organization, and uh, it was, the NAFTA was the first mega 
regional trade agreement, and nobody wanted to, to be outside this loop. So this is something that could really help galvanize our economies. And as you look around the world, boy, we need a little galvanization. So I was at the meeting. And no, China's not ready, and China wasn't ready then. Um, I hope China will be ready at some point, mm -hmm. or will be ready to join RCEP, or both. Uh, let's, let's rewind a little bit here. Uh, first of all, TPP was launched by the Bush administration at the end of the Bush administration. Mm -hmm. uh, at that point, we weren't sure Japan was ready to join. Um, the other countries that are involved. Willing. Yeah. Willing well, to join. <laughs> ready, or, ready or willing, either, at that point. Um, both. The other countries involved in, in TPP today were a part of the original conception of, of TPP. However, what a lot of people conveniently forget, including the Chinese from time to time, uh, is that the ASEAN plus six negotiations, which is now referred to as RCEP, had already started and excluded the United States. And so one of the things that we were concerned about was that this ASEAN plus China, Japan, Korea, Australia, New Zealand, India negotiation was moving ahead and was going to lock U.S. companies, U.S. interests out of the Asian market. So that is forgotten in the dialogue, but that negotiation was already ongoing. And the ASEAN plus China deal had already been concluded. The ASEAN plus Korea deal, the ASEAN plus Japan deal were already well along the way or concluded. So that's sort of point one. Point two, the, um, anyone who has followed China's role in multilateral, no, multilateral, refer to them as plurilateral negotiations recently, meaning like sectoral negotiations such as, in particular, the information technology agreement expansion, uh, will note that China has not been a positive contributor to negotiations where, by any definition, China is likely to be the most uh, happy beneficiary, by clearly the, the most likely beneficiary. So the Information Technology Agreement, for those of you not familiar with it, this is a 1996 deal that was done originally under the Clinton administration, eliminated tariffs worldwide on 90, I can't remember, 98%, 96%, if, if Charlene were here, she would correct me, uh, of all trade in, in uh, information technology products worldwide. Uh, then the um, Obama administration decided to expand that to add another 200-some products. Uh, and that just concluded. It took several years to conclude because, in particular, China kept holding it up, and you couldn't get a decision. This goes back to my point earlier. You couldn't get a decision out of the Chinese negotiators because Chinese negotiators were not empowered. You had to wait for Xi Jinping to focus on it, for the negotiators to get his attention. I'm talking seven tariff line items out of 10,000 tariff line items in the tariff schedule. 
and in this particular case, 200 products. You had to wait. And then you had to wait another eight months to find out whether tariffs were going to be staged, eliminated in seven years or five years. Anyway, it took several years to get this done. And by any definition, China was going to be the single biggest beneficiary in the world. And yet, even in that case, the Chinese negotiators, even at the ministerial level or the vice premier level, were not empowered to close the deal. So the deal was held up for several years. Now, that means that there are a lot of other countries, a lot of other negotiators in the world that are really nervous about negotiating anything with China. If it's going to hold up every trade. This is a very practical consideration. And then you have the fundamental question you asked. And that is the question, should China be there because of the reform question? And the answer to that is only when China is interested in those reforms. And I'm not persuaded China is interested in those reforms. Um, and that's up to China. And that's you up to China. China's not interested. China's when you say China is not interested in the reform, China is not. There are those in China who are interested in the reforms. Yes. There are those in China who are vested interests that oppose the reform. Right. The right. question is, is when you're sitting in an NSC meeting, are you going to try to build a bridge to those in China? who support those reforms, or are you going to basically say, you guys fight it out yourselves? And if you look you, at the... You, you, right. We'll see how it turns out, but when it turns out, we'll then see what happens. Correct, I, but if that... So if you are... So I'm being... This is the negotiator in me, not the economist, <laughs> and not the foreign policy person, okay? So the, the negotiator says, please give us a chance to negotiate the agreement, the parameters of the agreement... And then, if China likes the agreement, China can join the agreement. But otherwise, what you're saying is, this agreement may never reach any conclusion. This is what happened with the information technology agreement. You may never reach, you may never get to yes if that fighting that's going on within those factions, you know, within those, those, the differences within China, the pro-reform versus the anti-reform, if those folks don't get it resolved before they get to the negotiating table, the rest of us who actually might want this trade deal, we're, we're never going to get the trade deal. Same argument. Obviously, you know where I come out on this. Same <laughs> argument could have been made with Zhu Rongji and the, and the, the vested interests that were No, because the opposition. WTO existed. The WTO existed. And the and WTO... The accession negotiations were extremely complicated. They, as we... Yeah. I think Ken was in the NSC at that point. Exactly. When Zhu Rongji visited, and we had that extraordinary failure. Yeah. But did you have and to... And then ultimately the But success. you didn't hold up the whole... The creation of the WTO waiting... You didn't hold up the creation right, of the WTO yeah. for it. There. Yeah. Carla. A lot... I... Uh, I can see the point of view that's just been expressed. Uh, the, uh, we didn't start the uh, TPP. Singapore did. And then we asked to join. Uh, I think, by hindsight, we could have reached out a bit more to China. Whether they were ready to or willing to is n- not relevant. But uh, I know on our track twos, it has often been said we never were invited. And I think that uh, with the second largest economy in the world, there's a benefit to trying to 
encourage it to move ahead. And I think we uh, uh, need to say words that uh, are more inviting. It's, uh, I don't think that they would have joined, but uh, I do think that we would have gotten brownie points for the invitation. And um, I, uh, when I listen to Sue talk, and she's terrific, and you say, oh, these people, they elongate the, the negotiation and they can't make a decision. I wonder what the Chinese are saying or the Japanese are saying about us on TPP. Oh, we're terrible <laughs> to negotiate with. So be careful what you call the other guy unless your house is in order. <laughs> we are t- we are impossible to negotiate with. We know that. Right. Yeah. Barbara. I, I, no, I agree that we could have extended a, a, a hand here. And had we done that, perhaps the Chinese wouldn't have viewed TPP as an effort to contain them if we had at least done that, yeah, which we didn't. So all this is wonderful to speculate, yeah. but that's not where we are. Where we are now <laughs> is that we, we are hopeful that the TPP will be approved one way or another in our Congress and that it will, <laughs> that, that approval will, will extend to all of the other, the other uh, 11 nations and that this thing will go into effect and that down the line China will want to reach up and uh, and join and the same with the the others who are in the uh, RCEP yeah. same thing to get to this this all Asia free trade agreement that's worth really working toward <laughs> and i'm hoping that whoever is elected president <laughs> is going to have some of these objectives <laughs> in mind i can hope can't i <laughs> as a guy you used to have to make decisions about where i invested money <laughs> This transition period, let's say TPP is approved and RCEP approves, don't you get a bunch of trade diversion? Don't you have, in other words, because tariffs are different in different places and I'm making a decision to invest here, but it's got, I was planning on shipping into Southeast Asia or shipping to a, a an RCEP member rather than a TPP member and doesn't it just screw up the whole system? Yes. Explain to, as a non-trade person, how does no, that, no, it's, how does that play out? Yeah. If China finishes RCEP, there'll be trade, rev- a, a, a diversion and we will suffer. If we finish TPP and they don't, there'll be some trade diversion from China and they will suffer. My hope is that we're smart enough to build a bridge between the two. Uh, you know, in the NAFTA, we had 20 years for parties to get their house in order. And uh, I think that we could move along and gradually have liberalization. We could add China to TPP. By the way, they have now indicated that they have an interest. Their interest yes. And so uh, everyone's waiting on the United States because under the agreement, unless 85% of the economies of the region uh, accept and approve the agreement, it, it falls apart. Well, if the United States doesn't approve the agreement, that they can't get to 85%. So uh, when we talk about the, downward, uh, the downside risk, it's really huge in terms of leadership because, as Sue pointed out, this negotiation has been going on and on and on. And if we say... We're walking away from it. 
I don't know who's going to sit at the table with us ever, ever again. We, we simply can't walk away from yeah. this is where, where I am. We simply cannot. Somehow or other, this has got to get done. I think we need to get TPP done. I also think... I'm sorry? I think we need to get TPP done. How? How are we going to do it? We have two <laughs> candidates for president, both of whom don't particularly like it. Well, all three parties are- that are still standing don't like it. I mean, this is incredible oh. to me. Anyway, I... I- Lame duck. Let's see what happens. Lame duck ratification. Is that what you think? Oh, I mean, you you know, you end up getting it done the same way President Obama got the last three free trade agreements done, which is you you pretend to change them, (laughs) right? Like that. And then you call them your own, and then you move them. Anyway, um, (laughs) that was, of course, off the record. Anyway, the the um, is that no, what you're but, suggesting Secretary Clinton will. No, do I was going to make a different point. I was going to make a different point, which is which <laughs> is that that at the end of the day, the downside, um, and we're, we're it, we could get into a really wonky conversation about competitive liberalization, which we won't. Um, the downside to these bilateral and regional deals is that no matter what you do with them, because of rules of origin they really do tie the world up into knots. Uh, the, you know, the spaghetti bowl or noodle bowl of trade. And they really are not good for a smooth flow of, of goods um, uh, and services for the most part. And at some point, you hope you can get back to a multilateral system and a stronger multilateral system. I mean, the last time we concluded a successful multilateral agreement was 1993-1994. And so one of the reasons this this, uh, um, spirit versus letter of the law at the WTO is so significant is the law was last written in 1993-1994. And so we're enforcing trade agreements that were written before iPads and before the Internet and before and before and before. And so it becomes very significant. And so it strikes me that one of the areas where China and the United States could make such a fundamental impact together is by figuring out how to help propel the WTO forward. And it may not be in a huge multilateral deal like the Doha Round, because right. the Doha Round really is dead as a dodo bird. But, but it is and should be in these sort of plurilateral or sectoral kinds of deals. And that's something where China could make a fundamental difference and the U.S. could make a fundamental difference. And if the two working together could move the ball forward, others would follow. And, and that, I think, is, a, is, a, is an important area to move forward where the next president of the United States could say, okay, I'm going to do something different. Mm-hmm. But before leaving WTO and going on to some <laughs> bilateral issues, should we be granting China market economy status on December 11th, by December 11th. May I? Please. I would like to dissect your question into two parts. (laughs) Uh, The first part, part, uh, I would rephrase it to say, uh, should the U.S. abide by the agreement that we signed in 2001, that indicated that we would use non-NME, non-market economy methodology 
in the process of deciding what level of tariff should be placed on products that were dumped into the U.S. We clearly signed that. It was, as I've read the history of this, it was a big thing in the negotiations um, (laughs) that, that we could do this for 15 years. And the 15 years ends in December. Uh, and subsequent administrations have said the same thing. We signed this, and we're going to do that. And we should be a nation that abides by whatever agreements are that we sign. So, yes, we should, we should stop using that methodology as we have agreed. Now, the other question, though, <laughs> the second piece of the question is, uh, should we then or do we have to, uh, do, is there an obligation in that protocol to give China market economy status? I believe there is not, according to lawyers. Now, what does market economy status mean? Well, by law, there are six criteria, and commerce has the, the authority to, to uh, grant that. There are six criteria uh, in, in the statute, and at this moment, I think there's agreement that China doesn't meet all of them, some of them, but not all of them. One of them is the convertibility of the currency. Mm-hmm. And China has got, a, as an objective in the 13th five-year plan, an objective for 2020 to have the convertible, uh, the currency be convertible. And if I can digress. So what I'm saying to you is we should abide by our agreement and stop using that methodology. That methodology typically uh, means uh, higher tariffs is what that means. So that, that if you want to look at it, you're, you're scowling at me. I, I'm not scowling. I'm, I'm, scowling. Confu- I'm confused. You're saying <laughs> well, we you have should. the obligation to not I think to, we ab- to basically yeah. treat them as market as market economy, but our statutes allow us to not do it. So it sounds like there's a conflict. Well, I don't think there is. I just think it's it, in in terms of what's in that protocol and what we've agreed to do. The 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 formal market economy status thing it really isn't relevant. Now, there's another part of this. The U.S. business community, though, though I'm talking now steel and aluminum and there are some others who are worried about the overcapacity problem in China and the continuation of, of the dumping of overproduction uh, at, at too low um, prices costs here. Uh, that group of people is very concerned that without the NME methodology, that they're they're going to have a, a, a harder time with the dumped products. However, there was an amendment to the Trade Preferences Extension Act in in the summer, uh, last summer, that gives uh, that gives commerce a little more latitude in terms of what it can then do with with these um, dumping situations. So that I think. We can, we can kind of do it all in a way. It's a middle, middle road. We can stick by our agreement. No more NME methodology. Uh, but commerce, if there is a dumping problem, does have some, hopefully, smart ability to deal with, with that. And the market status, market economy status question is just sort of hanging over here. We don't have to do anything with that right now. Carla? I agree with Barbara that the market economy status 
expires in December of 2016. Every president since uh, the Chinese entered the WTO has so declared in the 2015 Obama statement, the president's statement, reiterated that. So that, that is a, a label. But treating China like we treat others, where it does not comply by either giving subsidies to companies or making other requirements, not protecting intellectual property. I'm sorry, they will, we, they will, we have the tools to deal with those. So we don't have to call them names and we can give a lot of applause for the progress they've made, but we have the, uh, the mechanisms to deal like we deal with other countries that violate the WTO rules. So any addition on that? I don't need to add anything. <laughs> rather not. Let's talk about the effect of Chinese investment in the United States with Dan Rosen here, who helps us compile our annual report, New Neighbors, which studies Chinese investment in the United States down to each congressional district. Um, what What's the effect and... Why can't we reach a bilateral investment treaty? I think we can. I, I, we're in the process of negotiating a bilateral investment treaty. It's Which taken a long time. proves you have time. to be an optimist if you're a U.S. trade representative. Yeah, absolutely. This is, this is, it's, it's, Their negative list is too long. You do. And I think they're running into the same political problems that we have. You know, we've got two political parties that are campaigning against trade. And here we're railing at China. But they've got a little friction between the politics and the economics. But we're going to get there. I, I have no doubt. They did join the uh, uh, the uh, uh, trade and services agreement. Uh, they they did join the uh, the uh, environmental goods agreement. And uh, you know, step by step, we'll get there. But we ought to reach out. Uh, this business of we'll make the rules, not the Chinese. I'd strike that from our vocabulary. I think we'll make the rules that will make the world prosperous and peaceful, and we want every country to join us. And the fact that we didn't want to join their bank. Why? In 2010, we made the motion at the G20 that uh, the percentages of China's voting shares in the IMF should go up because their economy had grown. 19 of the 20, our friends... Agreed. Only the, uh, only the U.S. Congress hasn't been able to quite get it on its docket. No, they've done it. Hmm? It's done. Yeah, but look how long. You talk about how long it takes to deal, do a deal with China. Absolutely, but it's finally done. Uh, I, I think that before we start pointing fingers at China, we ought to say, well, it took us six years to get this through. Amazing. So I, I think we could do a better job in our diplomacy that would enhance our economic and our strategic goals. Had you been negotiating a BIT? We were, we were trying. I think it's a great idea. I mean, having but a bilateral you were investment. It's been yeah, a while we, since you were USTR. We were, it's been a while. Yes. Well, we were, we, were, we were in the preliminary stages. China had to decide whether they, want one, they wanted one or not. And... Um, that's all right. I mean, I, again, I'm a I'm a great believer in 
negotiating trade and investment agreements with countries that want trade investment agreements with you for the right reasons and not negotiating trade investment agreements with countries that don't want them. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, it sounds trite, but, but, but they're really hard to negotiate. I mean, Carla is right. We are very difficult to negotiate with. <laughs> and don't say you want to negotiate a trade agreement with the United States if you don't, because we are really hard to negotiate with. But who really benefits from it? We're pretty yeah. much open. The United States. We are. We're pre- so why do people want to even negotiate well, bilateral I'll, I'll, I'll investment you, I'll, treaties I'll you, with us? Well, what, what's, what's their motivation? Well, there's, there, there's, there's some very good answers to that. Um, among them. And the Chinese it, in particular. Why, why do well, they? Well, it works want? like a, I mean, in a way, it works like a good housekeeping seal of approval. I mean, there are trade agreements, bilateral investment agreements. There is a certainty that accompanies those kinds of deals. Um, it's like insurance, safety associated with the investment. Uh, there are rules where you know that what the rules are. You know they will be enforced. You know how they will be enforced. You know that there's an issue, how it will be adjudicated. Um, there is certainty associated with the investment. If you're going to be putting large amounts of money uh, into another country, it's nice to know what, what the rules are. I think we're going to get there with, with a bit. Uh, I know, again, it's very high on the list of what the U.S., business community thinks would be very helpful in terms of, I mean, we've still got a hundred sectors that have restrictions on, on uh, foreign investment in, in China. And that's uh, kind of rubbing us all a little the wrong way. And uh, we, we think a, a bit would help. It would also help China along the reform path. Absolutely. And it would also help China if, if we had this, then later it, it's a, a, a leap, a bridge to the TPP joining also. It's kind of a, a continuum. I really think it's important. We've been at it a long time. I might add that during the JCCT discussions that I had in 1992, that came up. Right. And I think it even predates this. So this is one of these things. It, it's, it's, we're on the trail of it, and we simply just have to keep going until it gets done. Yeah, you never negotiate a deal to do somebody else a favor, and no one should ever negotiate a deal with us to do us a favor. I mean, you really are doing yourself a favor yes, if yes. you're negotiating a trade agreement or an investment agement. It should but be a win-win. It. It, should be win-win. It's a win-win. it is yeah. a win-win, but you have to be doing it for your own national purposes, interest. your own national yeah. interest, and it is also got to be in the national self-interest of the other country, and then you've got the makings of a win-win, and that is the only point where it's going to come together mm-hmm. and be successful. Let me open the... Uh, we've got an... Uh, Extraordinary audience here today, so let me uh, open the, the the floor to questions uh, from the audience. If you'd put up your hands, I'd be happy to There's recognize hand over there, you. Steve. To your left. We got back here. All right. Please. And please identify yourself. I don't recognize some of you. Hi, I'm Andy Joan with the East West Institute here in New York. Um, Ambassador Hills, you mentioned earlier uh, that the phrase. Uh, we're going to get to make the rules, not China, uh, as related to TBP, that we should strike that from the vocabulary. Um, it strikes me that President Obama is relying on that line, leaning heavily on that line in order to justify the TPP to the American public and to Congress. 
And I can feel from all the speakers on stage today the frustration about how difficult it seems to be to, for TPP to gain traction domestically. So my question is, if the sense is that, you know, maybe we should reach out to China in order to get them involved in TPP, um, which would undermine that argument that Obama, that President Obama has been leaning on, then what is the best argument to try to convince the American public and Congress that TPP is a, is a good idea for America? Because to my perception, we're obviously at a very anti-trade moment in our politics, and the idea that free trade is going to make a world a better place for everybody just doesn't seem to be sticking with the American public right now. So what is the best argument? Thank you. I think that you have to uh, explain the benefits of trade. And with 5% of the world's population producing about 18% of its output, we need markets where we can sell. And those who are producing need to have uh, the rules that uh, they know they won't be destroyed if they make either an investment or a trade. We have, I think it's already been commented here, uh, the world's lowest tariffs, about 2.5% on average. Yes, we have spikes, which I find offensive, on things like cheap tennis shoes from Bangladesh. When they, uh, you know, we actually charge Bangladesh more in tariffs than we charge France, which is extraordinary. That's a crazy kind of an outcome. But uh, if we can open up the market and have rules that set the parameters for what you know is going to happen, we will stimulate the global economy for the benefit, we talk about win-win, for the benefit of all of the participants. And when the economy is improved, you get a development uh, dividend. I know of no country which is in the throes of, of, of poverty that uh, conceal their borders and maintain the rule of law. And when they become a member of the WTO or even a bilateral or trilateral or plurilateral agreement, there are rules. Their economy improves. And where you have international or trade rules, it seeps over because you have agreed to something. And it also enhances your security. As we reduce poverty, we have security. So I think we have to broaden the sale. It isn't just the mercantile benefit that comes from the fact is that our GDP will grow by 1%, then you're missing the opportunity to explain that trade actually is an investment in the future. And by the way, if a country uh, has not been your partner, your trading partner before, and you open up your economy, you say, well, we have 2% tariffs, they have 10%, 20%, 30%, and you bring those down, and you help them develop. It's an act of enlightened self-interest in my view. That's what we did with the Marshall Plan. We created the markets of the future, and we can do that today. But we've got to explain it to the American people, and that we have not done today. That's a, that's a great uh, – that's great. <laughs> would, would echo all, all of that. I, what seems to have happened, and you know, this is what leadership is all about. What it. we really need is, is a president who will, who will articulate some of this, the benefits, the economic growth benefits, but also the security benefits. Mm-hmm. 
what seems to have happened here, which is really troubling to me, with, with all of these candidates being, being anti-trade, it's, we've lost the arguments about the benefits. And it's all about jobs yeah. and jobs being lost. And, you know, there are other reasons for jobs going other than, than the trade agreements. I mean, companies restructure. There's productivity through technology. technology. All kinds of things can happen. But somehow trade seems to be getting the, the rap. And until we get through this election and hopefully some more enlightenment in our leadership to be able to to change some of this thought process and perhaps address some of the the things that are causing this anger in our electorate we're we're sitting here with 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 this and it's really um, it's unfortunate when i pointed out that i had an exclusively female panel today i did not point out that i had an exclusively republican panel today <laughs> so I would then ask, since, since the word tariff has come up, I would ask, what do you think of the proposal that we impose a 45% tariff on all Chinese goods put forth by the um, presumptive Republican nominee? I, I would say that none of the nominees are profiles in courage on trade policy. Um, but only one is proposing. I, I only one is proposing wholesale violations I, of our I, WTO I would obligations. Just, it, it depends on how you do it, quite frankly. I mean, every country. <laughs> if you seriously, right, right, ladies? It depends on how you do it. Uh, if you, you, you know, is that is that? You mean there is a way we can put a forative percent across the board well, tariff without you're, you're being the lawyer. dumping? If you're they're the dumping, in violation of our WTO, I'm a lapsed lawyer. I mean, I am not. I, I, I think it's a stupid idea. It would hurt us as much as it would hurt anybody else, no question. But I mean, the point is, all of the candidates who are currently still running, and most of the ones who dropped off, had totally outrageous positions on trade policy um, that would hurt the United States economy, hurt the global economy. And going to your point in terms of in terms of positions on trade, these are not profiles in courage, these are cheap shots. And if you look, ironically, if you look at polling data, a majority of the American people, if you look at Gallup polls, you look at Pew polls, think trade's okay. I mean, the American people are actually ahead of their politicians on this. The majority of the American people think trade's okay and think trade agreements are okay. And it's actually coming out of primaries that you get the worst positioning on trade in terms of trade politics. And it's pandering to the extremes. And uh, if politicians were to say some of the things that Carla just said in terms of, you know, 95% of the consumers in this world are outside our borders. Like, where are you going to sell your stuff if you make it? Um, we have less than 3% of the population, of our population, going to the issue of employment. 3% of our population is in, is in agriculture. We produce far more in the way of foodstuffs than we could possibly consume ourselves. Where do you think we sell it? Right? We export, we have a huge trade surplus in agriculture. I mean, there's so many of these arguments that if politicians were to actually use these arguments, they would stick. And when you look at polling data, 
and exit polls. What do people care about when they're voting? Trade doesn't show up. The economy shows up. Jobs, Jobs show up. And you ask, how many, what proportion of people who lose their jobs? And, and you know, Kenneth knows this as well better than anybody, but what proportion of people who lose their jobs can point to trade as the, as the reason? Two and three percent. Two and three percent. It's technology change. It's productivity enhancements. You know, the U.S. economy will make, create 10, 12 million jobs. You'll have the destruction of 8 million jobs. But they're not the same jobs. And they're not the same people, and they're not in the same places. And you may have 200 or 300,000 people who lost their jobs because of trade. And for those people, it's it's devastating. And the question is, what are we doing for those people? And that's, and that's really what it comes down to. It's what are we doing to take care of those individuals? Because that's, that's the real that's, human side. I agree with that. I, there's something else here. Uh, this 45% tariff, I, I, I can't believe that will ever happen, and I can't quite take it seriously. But what is serious, though, we've been talking kind of around it, is what is going on right now in our electorate. Um, this disaffectedness and this anger that it has been given voice by some of these candidates. There is something going on here in our society that has to be taken seriously. And I don't think that our leader, whoever they are going to be, really get what is going on. And I'm certainly not an expert, except finally, I guess I'm part of the establishment. There's anger at the establishment. I think there's anger because of job loss, anger because of wage stagnation. I don't care what you you put in the anger bag, but it's there. And what what is concerning me greatly is that no matter who's elected president, I fear the anger is still going to be there and the divisions. So the next president has got to really rise to a leadership point of being able to try to find commonality, bring us together, and make some of these positive arguments about why we need TPP and a variety of other things. But I I think we should not gloss over whatever is going on out there that I must say I have not really understood. There is something that is happening. It's not showing up in polls quite the same way. I don't think. Carla. Well, you've had a lot of people uh, lose their jobs for a variety of reasons that we've mentioned. Technology, I used to go on the floor of an auto company, and it was crammed with people. It looked like Fifth Avenue. And now you go on, and it's absolutely clean like a, uh, a surgery room. And there are about three people, and they're connected to computers. But Sue is right that uh, the polls show that people like trade, but they don't think trade is good for them. That's the second question. And, uh, and, and those that are adversely affected or who have been persuaded that jobs have been shipped over to the investment that has been made beyond our borders uh, are offended by trade. I do think that we have to do a better job of training those who uh, have lost their jobs as a result of either technology or trade. And uh, uh, to be a skilled worker doesn't mean you need a doctorate or a college degree. You didn't when you were making the autos. You come in uh, in the IT field and fix the server, 
and you can be trained to do that. And I think that as a, uh, as a policy matter, we're going to have to figure out how we will f- fashion that kind of a program. Trade adjustment assistance is f- too complicated for the average man and woman who loses their job. Uh, you know, some of the Latin American countries have enlarged their middle class by providing a stipend to families who send their children to school. And the children have gotten educated, but they don't get that stipend unless they show the attendance record. And there are things with a a public-private partnership that we could engage in. United Technology has created a program where if they send uh, the job for a given individual more than 50 miles away, whether that be India or just down to Texas, they will provide training for moving upscale into the jobs. We have a job shortage in areas that are not being sufficiently supplied. So it isn't that there are no jobs. Skill shortage. Skill no, it's, a, it's a skill, skill shortage. Skill, yeah, but, and skill to some people means, oh, my gosh, they've got to go to Stanford. That's not the case. They need to learn how to do a job that didn't exist 10 years ago. Well, the, uh, to pick up on that, this whole trade assistment, uh, assistant, trade adjustment, pro- trade adjusted assistant, a lot of words, programs, they, they, uh, that whole thing needs to be rethought. Typically, the funds for it are appropriated by the federal government, but it's state administered. Right. And the problem is if you're in a state and you feel like your, your job has been lost to trade, you have to first find the right bureaucratic button, the right agency to go to. And then when you get there, I am told that you have to prove that, yeah. that your job has been been uh, disappeared because of trade, and that is very hard to do. So this whole thing, regime, needs to be rethought, and you're bringing up some more creative things that could be done. So the new president has got, besides showing leadership, to articulate the, the reasons why trade is good for economic growth, prosperity, security, has got to, to also then rethink this whole trade adjustment assistance Regime and come up with with something that is going to work. What we've got now doesn't work. You got some hands over here. Dan Rosen. Hi. Real quickly. Um, so, in the Clinton administration, Bill Clinton said to sidestep some of the tough politics of his time uh, to his Chinese counterpart. We believe that the United States is on the right side of history. It might have been Ken Lieberthal who wrote that line for him. In fact, um, thinking about the next president coming in. As Steve said at the top, it's been prickly and difficult for us to deal with China lately. China's growth rate has fallen in half over the past five or six years. Would you counsel, if you were coming in, to hold back, not be in a rush, let China fall, you know, hit its problems, hit its wall in a couple years to come before we try to bite off a big, big negotiation with them rather than trying to do it up front? I would certainly try to reach out to them with more harmonious rhetoric and say we'd like to work together. And then I would try to find some areas where we have a common interest and they have shown a responsiveness. Climate change, for example, is one, the energy area. And there are half a dozen where you could create the relationships that, in my opinion, regardless of what country you're working with, if you have a hostile relationship, it doesn't work. Look at Canada and the United States. Steve Harper didn't get along with Obama, or maybe it was the reverse. 
there's a warm feeling now between Trudeau and and uh, President Obama, and it makes a difference. There are they held their first leadership meeting. They'd been canceled before, and you could re- replicate that across the globe without a question. But if you're going to say we're not going to join your bank, and uh, by the way, I'm going to persuade this whole audience not to join it, it doesn't make you love me. <laughs> So I think we need to reach out with a little more diplomacy and try to find things where we could work together and that would demonstrate that we can create win-win situations and then we move on. Relationships count. You got it. Keith. Um, Thank you. Keith Abel. Uh, Looking at the, the populist arguments against... Uh, the TPP and against trade, it seems to me anyway that it's less about the electorate having the ability to understand whether or not trade is good or bad, but they're responding to accusations that we're trading poorly and the agreements favor our counterparties more than they favor us. And I suspect if they were hearing these extremely articulate arguments in favor of trade, the one line that would have stuck out is your comment that the Chinese are the greatest beneficiaries of the TPP, which you did say. You know, so um, I wonder, what, somebody said that, uh, at, uh, happy happy beneficiaries, the most happy beneficiaries, I think, was your exact word. TPP? Uh, yeah. Oh, I said of, of the information technology group. Ah, uh, apologies. Right, yeah. Not, not but in any event, knowing the, knowing the details of the agreements and of the tariff, uh, regime as you all do. Can you tell us, is it true? Are we trading badly? Are we really winding up uh, with asymmetrical agreements that favor the Chinese okay. more than they favor us? Why don't I, um, let me go, since you asked me about the information technology agreement, I refer to the information technology agreement. The economist in me will tell you that as a major importer of information technology, I am the greatest beneficiary of the information technology agreement, right? I mean, I purchase Infotech products. I purchase telephones, TVs, audio equipment. Um, Therefore, I am the biggest beneficiary. If the the mercantilist in me, the neo-mercantilist in me, says China is the biggest beneficiary because they export those products, okay? You, You get my distinction? Okay, so politicians, they're all neo-mercantilists, all right? So I was putting on my neo-mercantilist hat when I said that, and I was only talking about the information technology agreement because China and actually all of the East Asian countries that feed into that assembly that goes on in China in infotech, um, if you... If you're interested in this, go, you know, Google, Google the value added in an iPad or iPod and you'll discover the value added really is shared across, across long supply chains. A lot of it in the U.S., a lot of it in Korea, a lot of it in Taiwan, a lot of it. So it really is shared. But it, but, so that's, that's the answer on that one. Um, no country, no economy closes a trade deal it doesn't believe is in its own best interest. And in the case of the U.S. and the U.S. negotiators, and I think I can safely speak for my colleagues on this, 
not only don't you close a deal you don't think is in your own best interest, but you're also, you don't close a deal that you can't sell to the United States Congress. So, and the Congress, they're all politicians who are neo-mercantilists. Well, for the most part, anyway. That's a bit of an overgeneralization, but not much. So the answer is, these are pretty darn good deals. Now, there may be a few politicians running for president right now who think we didn't do a very good job. But so be it. I disagree with them. Keith, your question about have we traded well, uh, I tend to think that if you have rules that reduce the tariffs, protect your intellectual property, open up your services so you get financial services in and know what the rules are, and it is a reciprocal where they do the same thing, we're both benefited. It encourages small, the development of small and medium-sized businesses. It, it encourages the rule of law. So you don't have one side win and the other side not because Sue's right. You couldn't sell it. But uh, I think that uh, we benefit hugely. The other, the other point, having just building on what Carla said, is most people forget that you're talking about a growing pie. You're not talking about a zero-sum exercise. No. I mean, this, this is not if I win, you lose. No. It's we can both win. And, and so there, a lot of, you know, the temptation is for a politician, particularly a politician running for office, to forget that, that both sides can, in fact, win. There's a hand over here. TK, you've, you seem in extremis. <laughs> Uh, uh, nobody in this room lost his job to the trade agreements to China. I would argue a lot of us in this room owe our jobs to China and the trade agreements. But, uh, I mean, we live in a democracy, and there is obviously a significant plurality of people who believe that they've been hurt by the trade agreements. Um, they're not all benighted. They're not all angry. They're not all un, uh, unenlightened. I mean, there have been an article in the New York Times that says a million jobs in the United States went to China. So I don't find in the dialogue like a, a legitimate, you know, a, a really addressing the kind of the legitimate concerns of people who have voted, you know, in our democracy. Uh, let me just say that uh, economics isn't the easiest subject to uh, convey. You know, when people say, I lost a million jobs to China because X company went there and invested and hired a million people to try to tap into that market. Uh, we didn't lose those jobs. The Peterson Institute for International Economics has done a study that shows outward investment actually has caused an increase in jobs in the home market. And uh, it actually costs better jobs because, A, it boosts the growth of that corporation. They enhance their research and development, their administration and their, their technology and so forth to be able to handle this. They grow. And so it is not, you know, the fact that there's overseas investment does not mean that the jobs that that company creates overseas are subtracted from the jobs that they would have here in the United States. But you can walk out on the streets here in New York and ask the first hundred people you know, 
What do you think about the Trans-Pacific Partnership? They won't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and you say, do you know if an exporter cr uh, creates a company overseas that actually we get a boost and they get 18% more than what they would have if they'd stayed home homebound? They'd say you're out of your mind. So this is a hard sell, and it's particularly hard when the politicians are regularly hitting down on trade agreements, take your jobs, and then media reports it. And every night the media is reporting what they said. And it's like having a lousy teacher up there. I, 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 think, I think Carla's point. I, I think that's very important. The problem is we have these reports that come out that are really lousy economists. I mean, this stuff is really, and the lie gets repeated and repeated, and suddenly it becomes fact, and we don't have politicians who tell the truth about that. In fact, it wasn't one million. One of our uh, presumptive eight million yeah. is what they said. It was eight million, which is, just, I mean, it's fiction. It is just fiction. Um, and one of the roles of the committee is, I think, trying to have fact-based analysis that not just accept these, but have real economists come in and talk about what's going on. We just have time for one last question, um, which I'm going to ask. Oh. Um, <laughs> which is, you have 60 seconds with the new president. What are you going to tell her? Oh. <laughs> or him. Go ahead. You want to be first? <laughs> no. Okay. Mr. President, important to engage with your counterpart president. Build the relationship. Build trust. Find the areas where you can agree and work on those. Find the ones that you don't agree and work on those. Make sure in your administration you've got China hands who can help you manage this relationship. Work Capitol Hill. Uh, build a consensus up there and get a, rid of the misinformation so that we, we, uh, you un they understand where we're going with China and then communicate to the American people why this relationship is the most important bilateral relationship in the world. Perfect. I would say hire Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd tell her also, reach out and, uh, it's going to be tough for you to do a U-turn on trade, but uh, you can fix it. And, uh, you know, uh, they've run hard against trade, but uh, I think that uh, a small side letter with the TPP and uh, <laughs> saying, well, I fixed it, or alternatively, if we can get it done in the lame duck session, that will be a terrific gift. So uh, let's get it done. Yeah, uh, I would say that you will discover you have a remarkably limited number of tools in your foreign policy policy toolbox, and trade is domestic policy, domestic economics, foreign policy, international economic policy. Take advantage of it. Have fun with it and you're going to have to work your you-know-what off to make it work for you. Yeah. 
please join me in thanking these three wonderful women for contributing to the 50th anniversary. You are so good to come. You were great.